Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario has finally joined the rest of the country and signed a deal with the federal government to bring $10 a day child care to the province. Question is, what took so long? Is Jean Charest the guy for the federal conservative party? He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show today to talk about that. And Russian attacks continue to intensify in Ukraine. We get an inside look at what the city of Lviv looks like from Matthew Best, freelance journalist for the Globe and Mail. He's there on location, of course. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The daycare program, much awaited daycare program, is finally signed, sealed, and delivered. Ontario, the last jurisdiction uh, to sign on for them, but sign on they did. And if you've ever had to send a child to daycare, you're well aware of just how expensive it is, especially here in Ontario. Uh, prices for that care are about to become a whole lot more manageable, though, for working parents. That's after the deal was signed yesterday between the province and the feds. Global Sandy Salerno has details. If you have a child that is five years old and under and in child care right now, Premier Ford says you can expect to start paying lower fees for their care really soon. This deal will immediately reduce the cost of child care in Ontario and provide refunds retroactive to April 1st. The 25% reduction in fees kicks in next month, and by the end of the year, you can tack on another 25% in savings. As for when the average price will be reduced to $10 a day. That won't come until September of 2025. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca says their party would do it even sooner. Our plan that would be delivered in this province by the end of 2024, uh, so sooner, uh, and because we believe it's an urgent need. Del Duca says the agreement signed today could have been a done deal six months ago and says Ontario families waited so long for nothing. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Well, that's uh, part of the concern. I think uh, an issue that was raised by an awful lot of people is what did take uh, so long for Ontario to sign on to this? Uh, there's a, a lot of upside here to, to what they announced yesterday, of course. And, uh, I, you know, we've talked to parents, I don't know how many times on this program, a number of segments we've done, uh, and they're concerned about uh, what was going to happen going forward. And uh, Ontario did have, uh, before yesterday anyway, some of the highest daycare rates uh, anywhere in the country. But that's going to change as a result of uh, the announcement yesterday. And uh, to address some of those concerns and to tell us what's going to be happening going forward, uh, pleased to welcome to the program uh, Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce. Uh, Minister Lecce, of course, was at the meeting, uh, the announcement yesterday at the Brampton YMCA where they made the announcement. Uh, Minister, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. Right off the top, I know you've heard this a thousand times, but let's address the issue that a lot of people were raising. What took so long for this deal to come forward between the, the feds and, and the province of Ontario? Well, look, we are grateful and proud to deliver what no former government, particularly Liberals, who saw a 400% increase in child care happen over, the, over their tenure. We're actually proud to deliver what no government could, which is affordable child care that cuts rates immediately. The fact is, you know, the deal that we signed yesterday wasn't really on the table until over the last few days with the federal government. The main elements agreed to really only a few weeks earlier, and that includes another year of commitment and more funding. We originally had a $10.2 billion deal for five years. As you know, Bill, we delivered a $13.2 billion deal over six years. We were able to ensure maximum flexibility, moving the dollars year over year. We have 100% carryover, meaning we have 100% flexibility to do that. We didn't have that originally. And finally, the program is designed, at least from the federal perspective, for nonprofit childcare. I just believe we should not be ideological. We have to fight to ensure that for the 30% of our child care operators that are for profit, they shouldn't be left behind. Why should those parents pay astronomical fees 
we can support all parents. And that's exactly what we've done. We've protected those uh, families, nonprofit and for profit. So, look, it took time. We landed a better deal for the people of Ontario, billions of dollars more, an additional year of investment that no province has. And we're going to provide immediate relief bill. Like we're not like some provinces may have signed a deal six months ago, but they're still figuring out how they're going to implement it. They struck these implementation committees. It's a whole bureaucracy. Six, nine months later, they haven't done much. We are in our program. It's baked in starting now, like immediately. We're already asking operators, do you want in? And we're going to allow them in and allow the, the funds and the savings to flow immediately with a rebate starting in April, 25% on average up front and then 50% by Christmas of this year on average. So it's, it's going to make a difference. We're talking about like $6,000 on average of savings for working people in Hamilton and across Ontario. So it's just good news. Are you comfortable with the deal, Minister? When you and I have talked about this in the past, I know one of the concerns that you were consistently uh, raising uh, was how long this deal was going to last, the longevity of it. And you're concerned that yeah. uh, some future government may in fact say, okay, you know, this isn't working, we're pulling the plug on this. Uh, you wanted that sustainability and, and, and that comfort level. Have you got it? Well, I think we've incrementally achieved more of it because what we don't want, to your point and to my previous position, uh, my current position is, you know, all this funding for five years and then it stops abruptly. Now, the federal government will, has said that, you know, worry not, we're going to continue to flow those dollars. But we want that in writing, you know, for when it comes to signing a deal on behalf of the Ontario taxpayer, it has to be, we have to make sure we're signing a deal that it could endure the test of time. And so we have delivered an additional year, $2.9 billion more dollars for that year. And we have really, I think, uh, started the conversation with the federal government to bake it into their fiscal framework, make sure that their long-term budget has money provisioned so that we continue to uh, make childcare affordable and we do not see a spike in fees. This is going to cut fees immediately. It gradually will reduce down to $10 on average by year 2025. And I think that's an important outcome for young families. You know, inflation's rising, the cost of living's rising. What can we do today that can make life a bit easier for a young parent? And I will say, Bill, for a lot of women particularly, but for many parents in general, it became so cost prohibitive under the former Liberals to afford childcare that many of them left the job market altogether. Like, just think about how crazy that is. We have people who thought it, ultimately it was cheaper to stay home than go to work and send their kid to daycare. That is ridiculous. And so we have now said, particularly to the women that left, this is a huge opportunity for job creation uh, to support our recovery and to put some money in the bank for these people. So I think it's going to, it's for a variety of reasons, it's a good outcome, it's a better deal, and it's one that I think we can absolutely say to Canadians, to Ontarians particularly, uh, that we've achieved our mandate on behalf of the people of Ontario to extract the best possible deal for them. There's another element to this that uh, that I know many parents that I talk to over the program over the last number of years, Minister, have expressed concern about, and that, of course, is, is availability of spaces. Yeah. You know, I, I think you reference the story a little while ago but i mean you, you've had people contact you as i have that said look we we had to put our name in for a space before our child was even born we're still you know expecting but it's that much of a wait time the big push here for so many uh, parents now is the fact that this is also supposed to lead to the creation of new spaces for them how is that going to happen and how soon can you attain that that number that's talked about here in the legislation yeah, it's, it is important because, you know, we could cut fees 50%, 100%, but if there isn't a place to put your child, you're not going to reap that benefit. So part of this program is the acknowledgement that we need more child care centers and spaces to be created. Licensed child care, licensed home care are both eligible. 
So 86,000 spaces are funded. We're operating those dollars. We've provided that in this agreement. We're going to see systematic growth over every single year of this agreement till 2026 when we get to build them all, fund them all, and open them all. So you're going to see openings and growth every single year. It really picks up the last three years of this program. And ultimately, you know, we have a three-year review built in. That's something we negotiated in Ontario to protect taxpayers to say, look, we need a three-year review of the program sort of at the halfway point to take stock of do we have enough spaces and do we have enough funds from the federal government to continue to achieve $10 given you know, the rising cost of inflation? So that's something we, we were able to secure in our program. And if we think we need more spaces or we need more funds or both from the federal government, I assure you, we will stand ready to continue to make the case to them uh, that they need to step up to provide those long-term investments to get to $10. Uh, and I think they, they, they know that that's coming because we put it into our program. Because what we don't want is ha- having to make a choice of reducing the spaces or increasing the fees. That's not acceptable in Ontario. Our government and our premier believes we should be, on a matter of equity, paying the same fees to the extent possible for the provinces and families east and west of us. So we have that built in. It's a protection for the taxpayer. And I think it'll accompany the other objective of affordability that we're going to see immediate savings 25% now uh, in the coming in the immediate term on average, 50% by Christmas, and then $10 on average by year 2025. All right, let's get to the other side of the, the financial ledger here, and that's uh, compensation for those uh, spaces and those jobs that you are creating. Uh, you know, and I certainly have uh, heard from a number of people that have left this industry at daycare because they said, look, we're not making enough money. We can't pay groceries. We can't make ends meet. Right. How do you address that? Uh, it, it's great to know that it's going to be affordable for parents, but you want people that are looking after those kids to, to be properly compensated too. How does that get addressed here? Yeah, and look, I, and I've got to say, you know, we didn't close child care through the pandemic. They stayed open. These folks worked right through, and I do want to acknowledge that because they worked very hard, and I know they care about the kids. So uh, thank you to the early childhood uh, educators and, and child care staff listening today. We're going to be hiring 14,000 more of them to, to staff the 86,000 spaces were created. So how do we retain the workforce? Your question, how do we incent more people to step forward? Uh, we're doing that by increasing the wages, a minimum wage of $18 for an ECE, $20 for, uh, for an EC supervisor, and a $1 per hour increase per year up to $25 will happen. So every year there'll be an increase of a dollar reaching to 25 at the peak. Uh, that will help make the wages more competitive. Keep in mind, most of our staff, about 75%, we believe, are making already more than $18. But this is going to help create a level playing field. It's going to help increase the wages of that minority of staff that aren't making enough. And I think it's going to help create a uh, value proposition, help to encourage more young people and individuals to enter into these careers, knowing that they are in a place that... uh, uh, has the money for the wages, has the compensation there that's competitive, and also has investments made to keep the center safe. I mean, we're putting 9,000 more HEPA units in these centers. We provide uh, N95s and high-quality PPE, the only province to do that. So we're doing a whole bunch to really uh, reduce risk and make these workplaces as safe and comfortable as possible for the kids, of course, and as well for the staff. Are you uh, comfortable that you can roll this out efficiently? I know that when we talked to Minister Gould about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, she was talking about the game plan, essentially. You know, how does Ontario going to move forward and incorporate this? Uh, uh, I, I understand from the uh, announcement that you, you were talking about yesterday uh, that current operations are going to be grandfathered into this program. Is that correct? 
Say that one more time. That the current the existing facilities are going to be grandfathered oh, yeah. into this program. Uh, certainly, uh, any childcare center in Ontario that's open today, they can choose to enter into this program. They have till September to do so. Uh, and we think that's an important choice that they'll make. They're going to do so quickly based on the experience of some other provinces. Uh, we already have a massive amount of interest uh, today and yesterday of how do we sign up. So we do think that's going to happen quickly, but we are requiring those decisions to be made by September. We're requiring the, the savings to flow no later than 60 days after that decision by the operator. And we're cutting retroactive checks in the case that those operators aren't ready to go uh, for the beginning of April. So, you, so families will see the savings, uh, and operators uh, will uh, receive the funding to do that. Minister, I know it's a busy day for you, but I've seen you already. I've been to a couple of the news shows already this morning. appreciate you taking some time for us this morning on this program to bring us up to speed on that. Thanks so much for this. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Have a good day. Take care. Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce giving us some of the details about this uh, program. And, and listen, if, if you're involved in this, if you've got kids that are already in daycare, you're going to see, as the minister mentioned, immediate savings on that, and that's good news. But get in touch with your MPP and or your MP, because this is actually, as we mentioned, uh, a collaboration of the two levels of government. And uh, I, I understand where the minister's coming from here, and we heard the premier talk about this yesterday uh, as they were making the announcement in Brampton, uh, that this, in their mind, is a better deal because it does extend for another year. And that, I still find it hard to believe that, that it took that long for them to come to that kind of a conclusion. There's give and take on both sides here. And I know that was kind of a nice political love-in yesterday between the Prime Minister and the Premier and, and the Ministers, Minister Lecce and Minister Gold uh, and others that were there to talk about this. But I guess the bottom line here, as far as we're concerned, and as far as parents are concerned, is the deal is done. And uh, it's it's a long time coming. I know we've come close to this finish line a number of times with the provincial governments, uh, but for the province to step up and, and the federal government to have the money on the table, uh, it's now coast to coast to coast that we've got this program in place. And that's a very positive thing, I guess, going forward. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The federal conservatives are looking for a new leader and uh, a number of uh, prominent names are being rumored. A couple have already made their intentions known. One of them is actually a former member of the party, a former premier of the province of Quebec, Jean Charest, leadership candidate for the Conservatives. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Keller Show to uh, bring us up to speed on his campaign. Mr. Charest, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for the time today. Oh, thank you very much, Bill. I mean, right off the top, uh, what was the motivation for you to get involved in this? I mean, I, I'll state the obvious here, I guess. This is, this is not the party that you left some years ago, uh, the party of Brian Mulroney and, the, and so many others. Yeah. Uh, the, the party's taken on a whole different character, a whole different atmosphere. Are, are you comfortable with where they are? Well, very much so. And Bill, let, let me start first for the party by just stating the obvious. A political party is a living institution. It evolves through time and uh, through the different leaders, including Mr. Scheer, including Mr. O'Toole, and of course, Stephen Harper, who was a very solid, competent prime minister for Canada, ran the economy very well. And so the new leader takes the party as is. We're not going back in time. And I'm running as a conservative, not a hyphenated conservative. And I'm not, you know, blue, red or whatever. I, I believe in certain basic values of the party, which includes fiscal conservatism, market-based economy, uh, law and order, uh, respecting the rule of law, and a, and, a, and a way of dealing with our federal system. Why am I running? I'm running for Canada. You know, it's been the theme of my life, Bill. You know, whether the referendum of 95 or going to Quebec to push back on the uh, referendum that the separatists wanted to present again 
1998. Uh, it's been the common theme of my, my whole life. And being a citizen of this country, Bill, is like winning the lottery. And, uh, we're, and, and yet the country is way below its potential. And the Conservative Party needs to step up and be a national political party so that we can elect a national government and, and allow this country to really rise up and meet its full potential. One of your uh, opponents uh, in this race, uh, one of the declared opponents anyway, uh, seems to be insinuating, though, that you're, you're not a true conservative. I, I, I guess he's trying to paint you as that red conservative you were just talking about, maybe too close yeah. to, the, to the political middle. How do you respond to that? I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I, I do have an opponent who spends more time attacking me than running his own campaign, which says more about him than me. And, uh, you know, to, to say that would, would mean that you'd have to uh, totally misrepresent uh, my whole political career. I went to Quebec, for example, to lead a coalition of federalists to fight back uh, the uh, separatist threat. And I had, at that time, Preston Manning and Stephen Harper were the, among those edging me on to go there. And, and if you look at my record, let's look at my record. Uh, when, I, uh, when the Liberals left in Quebec, left uh, power, uh, they, we left an $8 billion surplus to Mr. Legault and a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario bill. And, uh, and if you look at my whole record, I've always governed myself based on conservative values because it's what I believe in, in my, in my soul. And it's what I believe in my heart to be right for the country. So, so there, you know, that's what I, I stand. I mean, I'm running again as a, as a conservative, I'm not trying to, I qualify every conservative I, I cross uh, during this campaign to categorize them. I mean, we're all, aren't we done with that? I mean, we've all had enough of this identity politics. Why don't we all just be conservatives based on conservative values? That's where I stand. Well, there's a political reality here, though, isn't there? Uh, that uh, I, I suppose that uh, Mr. Polyev is, is is you know leaning towards here. Uh, it, uh, you know, a, a party's name is is really just that. It's a name. I mean, you know, you were premier of province. You were considered a liberal, uh, but the Liberal Party in Quebec is much different than the Liberal Party in many other parts of the country. I mean, BC is the same way. When Christy Clark was the premier there, that exactly. was a quote unquote liberal government, but it was a small C conservative attitude that she took, as you did too. I guess it's it's really kind of playing off the name here. I would think it is. It is playing off the name. It's a misrepresentation of uh, of of what things uh, were. And I led a coalition in Quebec of federalists who were fighting a referendum because we wanted to keep Quebec within Canada and, and fight for Canada. I mean, and, and, and to be told this today, frankly, but, but by, the, by the way, Bill, why waste a lot of time about that? This is about the future. It's not about the past. It's about a leader who's going to be able to unite the party, A, and B, allow the party to win a national majority government. I can do that. And by the way, Bill, I, I happen to believe that I'm the only candidate in this race who has the ability to lead this party into winning a majority national a majority government. And after losing two elections, with one with Mr. Scheer and Mr. O'Toole, I think the members of the party want uh, to do that. And, the, and people in Canada want that. I'm hearing it everywhere. People want a, an alternative to the federal Liberal Party. And they, want, uh, they know the choice that we're going to make is pretty important. Either we're going to go down the, the path of wedge politics and uh, and this american style politics or we're going to be canadians and continue to have the kind of canadian leadership we want for the country that's what i stand for 
so how do you bring the party to that? It, it's, it's a laudable goal, and I, I, I agree. I've talked to a number of people in your party uh, that are yearning for the, t the time when this can be a national party again. They feel as if it's maybe a little bit too Western-centric at this stage. Uh, you mentioned the last two elections. Uh, the Conservatives seem to have an awful lot of trouble winning in urban centres. Uh, maybe it's yeah. because of policy, I, I guess, uh, but it, it has not bode well for them in the last couple of elections. How do you rectify that? Well, the party being a living institution, the leader will shape with the members and with the caucus what the next uh, the platform will be. And uh, there's a few key issues that we have to get right on uh, for people who live in the GTA, for example. One of them is on immigration. I mean, uh, in 2015, and Mr. Poitier was part of that, uh, the party crashed badly on the immigration policies they proposed on the NECAB and the this hotline and gave the impression to new Canadians that, you know, we're watching you, as opposed to saying to new Canadians, you know what, we, we, you are a member of the family. We're absolutely delighted that you are here in Canada to build this country as our ancestors were. And that's, and I, and my policies will speak to that. I want us to be able as a country to attract talent from all over the world, but we also need to recognize their qualifications. We need to integrate them into a job and languages. And it's a very positive outlook. In fact, Bill, we are extremely lucky as a country to have a number of people who come here to make their lives and we need them. So that's, that's the way. And so in the urban writings, like the GTA, you need a leader who's able to express that and has a track record of, of supporting that. The other area will be on climate. And uh, we, need a, we don't need a slogan on climate policy. What we need is a comprehensive approach that is smart, that allows us to support carbon capture and storage and small modular reactors and biofuels and hydrogen, whether green or blue, and to do the things that are smart for our economy. And yes, have a price on carbon, but doesn't discriminate against rural Canadians, doesn't, isn't a wealth transfer tax, and something that is flexible enough so that you avoid what Mr. Trudeau is going to do in a few days from now when he uh, increases the carbon tax that he imposed, which doesn't make sense, uh, Bill. I mean, with inflation now and the war in Ukraine, I mean, we, we sh he should be, I think, uh, sensitive enough to say, I'm not going to increase the carbon tax. He won't do that. But we need a, we need a party that needs to get these issues right. And if we do, then people in urban centers, including the GTA, including the area that you're from, is, are, are going to give us a, a real hearing and we'll win. But you've seen the reality here, and I'll go back to, you know, the, the I guess the mindset of an awful lot of people in the current Conservative Party. I mean, at their last policy convention, as you know, they couldn't even pass a, a motion to, to acknowledge that there was a climate crisis in this country. You, if you're going to do what you're suggesting here, uh, you're going to have to drag some of these people kicking and screaming into the 21st century, aren't you? Well, that's what the leadership race is about, is to be able to offer ideas and to persuade and convince members. And, you know, I, I, what, what I know from that episode, I, I think they, they got off to, uh, the debate got on some track and we ended up with this resolution. But frankly, the leadership race is about that. To be able to express these ideas, allow members to vote, decide who they want as a leader. And a lot of new members, are, a lot of new people are coming into the party bill. And uh, we have until the 3rd of June to recruit new members. So folks out there who are out there who want to support my campaign, go out there, get a membership. And then after the 3rd of June, we'll be convincing people who are members uh, to support our campaign. And the vote will be on the 10th of uh, September. And then we take it from there. And, and, and that's, that's why these leadership races are very significant. A lot of people I meet, and I'm sure you meet them, look at us and this race and they, their intuition 
is that the choice we will make as conservatives is going to have a very real impact on the future of the country. And it isn't just about conservatives. This is about Canada. And, and that's exactly my feeling, my, my own sentiment as I run for the uh, leadership of the party. Let's, uh, just for a second, I know your time is limited, but I wanted to ask you about a, a debate that's already happening in Ottawa these days, and that's defense spending, especially in light yeah. of the crisis in Ukraine, of course, and, and Canada's commitment with NATO. Uh, you, you've known, of course, about uh, the suggestion, I guess it is, if it's not even a hard fast policy, that 2% of GDP should be going towards military spending. Uh, I think we're at 1.39 right now. How do you how do you rectify that, and how would uh, uh, Prime Minister Charest, uh deal with a situation like that? Well, I was part. I was part of the last government who actually met that two uh, percent threshold. And the way to do it is that we have to increase it to two percent. We have to do it in a way that allows us to to do it in an orderly fashion, but the, as rapidly as possible. And we need to get our procurement policies right. You, you've seen in the last few days this decision on the F thirty five planes. You know, it took seven years uh, for the Liberal government. They actually ran in two thousand fifteen, saying we're not going to do the F thirty five. They have blown and wasted seven years of our time. And it took the war in Ukraine for them to finally wake up and deal with this issue. So that's that in itself tells a, a pretty good story of why we need to change governments and clean up the procurement process for Canada, which, by the way, has also been difficult on, uh, under all governments. I do want to say something on defense that is um, a concern of mine, and that's the Arctic and the North. And uh, Russia is our neighbor up uh, in the North. Uh, the Northwest Passage is not even recognized by the United States as being uh, Canadian territory. So we have a, a pretty urgent job to do, Bill, in occupying our northern territory, affirming our sovereignty and our right over that territory. And on the defense side, that has to be a big part of what our future policy will be about. Early in the race, of course, uh, and we, we appreciate your time today. I, I know there's going to be a lot more debate uh, as you get closer to the day where the actual vote is taking place, and we look forward to some further conversations about policy and other issues like that. Uh, Mr. Charest, thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. Bill, it's been a real pleasure to, uh, to have me to be on with you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care. Jean Charest, of course, leadership candidate for the Federal Conservative Party, former member of the party, of course, in the Mulroney government, and a former premier of the province of Quebec. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As the uh, announcement about the daycare plan was uh, being made yesterday in Brampton, I, I thought one of the more interesting perspectives was uh, when Deputy Prime Minister Christy Freeland spoke and kind of went back in history, which I thought was very, very important and, and very apropos of the day. Uh, she talked about some of the great women, the iconic women uh, from past generations that uh, worked so very hard to make something like yesterday happen. Here are the comments from uh, Minister Freeland. It is the fruit of more than half a century of activism by Canadian feminists who have understood for a really, really long time that early learning and childcare was an essential feminist policy, but also an essential economic policy. It's interesting perspective on that, and I think, it, it, as I say, it's, it's more than just looking after kids. There's a, a huge, huge economic uh, story that needs to be told here, too. And uh, help us along with that. Uh, so pleased to welcome to the program Claudia DeSanti, who is the uh, Senior Manager of Policy for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Claudia, great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Bill. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about the impact this is going to have. I know we've talked with you and, and with Rocco Rossi in the past about what uh, has been dubbed as the C-session, you know, the depression, the recession uh, that has had such a, a terrible impact on women in the workforce. How is this going to help alleviate that concern and that pressure? 
this childcare agreement is a historic moment for the economy. The system that we have now is unaffordable and inaccessible for too many families. It's mostly women that take on that unpaid care work. And because of that, we have a suboptimal level of women's participation in the labor market. That is bad for business, especially right now, because Ontario is facing massive labor shortages across different sectors and employers need as many workers as they can get. So this agreement is, you can think of it as infrastructure almost. It helps people get to work. So it's going to have an impact on the labor market in the short term as well. Um, and in the long term, there's a return on investment for children as well. We know that from economic research, when children Children are placed in high quality care. They have better outcomes in life, higher incomes. Um, it, it's just it's incredibly valuable for the society and economy as a whole. There's a there's a job creation element to this too, though, isn't there, Claudia? I mean, you know, they've talked about uh, the creation of a number of, of new spaces for children, but also you've got to have staff for this. And and you know, they're talking about finally some decent pay for the people that are in this profession. So this seems to be a win win. That's right. The approach here, it's not just the size of the deal, which is uh, $13 billion over six years. It's also the approach, which is to invest in the supply itself. And that's very different from what's been done up till now, which is to subsidize parents. But in this case, they've realized that there's a bit of a market failure um, and the subsidies for parents don't really address the lack of supply and the wage issue. So now finally, we're going to see uh, more people entering into the profession of early childhood educators. Um, and we're going to see efforts to also improve training uh, and improve uh, recognition of foreign credentials. And, and we're seeing this across the care economy. There was an announcement just 30 minutes ago uh, for healthcare as well. The care economy has really proved to be essential during the pandemic, and it's always been that way. Um, and so without government support, you won't have enough people entering those fields, and, and that has massive economic repercussions. So this is, as I say, is going to be a job creator, but it's also going to alleviate an awful lot of pressure and bring women back in, into the workforce right now, too, uh, <clears throat> which is something that you at the Chamber have been preaching about for quite some time. And I'm, I'm glad you brought those other issues up, too, because it's it's, it's an, an all-inclusive thing. There are so many different tangents and sidebar issues uh, to mm -hmm. this policy. Uh, it, it's not just about getting uh, women back in the workforce and, and giving proper uh, child care. Uh, and attention that it deserves in situations like this. Uh, but it also addresses, as you mentioned, immigration and so many other different things and, and recognizing uh, the, the, the talents, I guess, of, of these people that want to come into this country. Uh, couldn't happen at a better time right now, could it? That's right. And it's not just about the number of people in the labor force. It's about the productivity because women, we know, tend to choose specific jobs based on family obligations, especially if they know they're having children or they have children. Um, it shouldn't be a barrier for choosing which career path they are best suited for. So we know that um, when they have access in other countries to high quality care, they're able to enter into careers that are most suited to their skill sets. And it, so it's not just more people in the labor market, but it's higher productivity overall. Um, and, and as you mentioned, the timing is really critical right now because sectors like the skilled trades, uh, like uh, science, technology, engineering, math, uh, are facing big shortages and especially shortages of women. Uh, it's, it's predominantly men in those sectors. So this will really, really help address those shortages. Well, and that's one of the things that you at the Chamber have been talking about about quite some time now. Uh, I remember having a discussion with, uh, with uh, yourself and with Rocco Rossi for that matter too, uh, about, for instance, uh, people in the healthcare profession, and uh, and you know, recognizing qualifications of of immigrants into this country right now, and it's it's been a stumbling block for generations, hasn't it? It has. Um, there's 
unnecessary barriers to recognizing credentials, even within Canada across different provinces. Um, and because of necessity, that is finally being addressed, as I mentioned, not just in childcare, but in other care professions, uh, PSWs and such. Um, and, and that's really important because uh, the qualifications that they receive, even abroad, uh, there's a way to recognize those and make sure that they are uh, you know, adequate for Canada and for our needs. Um, but that shouldn't be a barrier to someone who is professionally trained to come into Canada and use their talent to fill a need that we have. It, it's it's a long time coming. You've talked in the past about the impact this has had, the, the recessions, uh, the pandemic, certainly in the closures. Uh, and I know you've put policy papers out on this, and it seems as if uh, there's a lot of boxes you can check now because of the uh, the collaboration here between the province and the federal government. A little crystal balling, if we could here, Claudia. Do you, do you anticipate there's going to be an immediate positive reaction in the workforce to this as, as people uh, start to take advantage of this plan? I, I do think there will. We saw, uh, we've been tracking job numbers over the pandemic, and every time schools reopened, there was a spike in women's labor force participation. So immediately, as soon as restrictions were lifted on schools, uh, women were able to rejoin the labor market. Uh, so this will really have a big impact. The other thing I'll mention, too, is that uh, in other provinces where they signed agreements sooner, women, or sorry, families were seeing checks in the mail very quickly. And in Ontario, we are being told that parents should expect checks uh, as early as May. So it's not just um, labor force participation, but also um, a little bit of relief to their wallets, uh, which, as we know, with inflation right now, uh, will be important for them. Um, and, and I think important for uh, spending and for generally for the economy. So we're happy to see that uh, the benefits will be seen quite soon. You are the small, the business voice for, for small businesses, especially here in the province of Ontario. Uh, I would think this policy is going to be a huge uh, benefit to, to small business folks who are really feeling the pinch, of course, of that labor shortage. That's right. We, I can't tell you how often childcare comes up as one of the things that a small business owner would like to see because they don't have capacity to provide that to their staff. They would love to, but uh, margins are very tight. Uh, you see some larger businesses actually do childcare within their own um, physical establishments if they can if they can afford that and they have the space for it. But for a small business owner, it's just not possible. So government really needs to step in there and this will make a big impact on them. And they're suffering a lot right now so so with those labor shortages and also just getting by with the the impacts of the pandemic we're very happy to see that some relief is coming on this end as well well uh, we're waiting with great uh, hope now for, to see some of these positive impacts of this policy we had the minister minister let just a few minutes ago talking about that and uh, it's great to know that the chamber is supportive of this and uh, uh, i guess uh, if you keep hammering the message claudia i guess eventually governments do listen don't they uh, thanks so much <laughs> for this today <laughs> Keep keep doing what you're doing, Claudia, and thanks so much for this. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Take care. You bet. Claudia DeSanti, of course, Senior Manager of Policy for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What is happening with Ukraine? I, we know that uh, the negotiations are still ongoing in Turkey, but what's happening on the ground? How are the people responding? And, and talk about some of the volunteerism that's going on there, too, to try to keep people safe uh, in in some of the key cities here that we hear about from time to time. And we're kind of getting mixed reporting, quite frankly, from some of the correspondents who are over there. We do rely on our next guest, though, to give us the, the bare facts about exactly what is happening. Uh, Matthew Best is a freelance journalist who writes for the Globe and Mail and the Ottawa Citizen, among others. And he is in Ukraine right now. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're doing well over there. 
Uh, I'm doing okay. I think I might have come down with a slight case of coronavirus, but uh, other than that, um, I'm actually pretty good over here. Yikes. Okay, well, uh, we wish you the best on that. That can be a real thing to deal with. I know a number of people are testing positive these days, too. It's the last thing I guess you need while you're working over there. Let me ask you, I want to get right to the to the heart of this question here, because I, I you watch for instance, CNN, and you get one perspective on what's happening over there. You turn another network, and there's a different perspective on this, uh, especially when it comes to where you are in Lviv right now. That uh, We know that there was an attack there yesterday. The first time in a long time, I guess, that there was a missile attack there. What are you seeing and what are you hearing? Right. So that was that was actually the missile attack on uh, Saturday that had been yeah. a precision munition that had hit a uh, what was a fuel dump uh, to the east of the city, basically, you know, fuel stored there and uh, Russians, I guess, want to attack the logistics. For a lot of people, you know, it was, it was your standard day. It was the air raid alert went off. People kept walking around and sort of going about their business. I'd been in the media center, which is actually located in a bar. And uh, one of the only days you can actually grab a beer here in Lviv is on Saturday. Um, so I went over to, to grab a beer, went down to the basement. Um, they said, oh, we don't serve it during the air raids. Uh, I went back upstairs and I saw black smoke on the horizon. And of course, that was from the strike. Uh, we had to hold back on that for a couple of hours. But when I saw the coverage later, um, a lot of it was sort of not really what I'd expect uh, from the reality of the situation. Don Lemon was out there and he's in his full protective gear. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, Bill, but we saw Geraldo doing something very similar back in, in the Iraq war where he would be sure quite do. far from danger and, and, you know, all dressed up to the nines like he was right in the thick of it. And Lviv is, I wouldn't say it's a safe city, but it's a safer city. And there's only been two strikes here. And that sort of... Um, it makes good TV, right? Don Lemon's on CNN. It's He's in front of the cameras. It's good TV. It looks scary. It looks intimidating. But it really doesn't tell the truth of the situation. I mean, the stuff he's wearing is meant to protect him from gunfire. The Russians are nowhere near us. It's not going to do anything against a missile strike, and it's sure not going to do anything against fire. So when people are seeing those images over there in, in North America, I think the U.S. especially, but somewhat to Canada, it gives a very misleading image of what people are experiencing here. It's definitely, a you know, it was an upsetting situation for a lot of people, just as a strike on the airport was. But it was nowhere near the over-dramatized level of danger that was being played up for TV. And that's the concern that I had as I watched some of this coverage. And I saw the Don Lemon piece, and uh, it, it, the analogy with Geraldo, I think, is, is very apt in this situation. I guess some people just like to put a little bit of showbiz into this, too, and which, which I know in, in your reporting is, is not to suggest that, you know, there's nothing going on. I mean, there's, there's a war going on, and you can see uh, elements of that, of course, as you mentioned, looking out the window and, and certainly hear about it as well. But uh, you just wonder sometimes if uh, if some people are taking it to the nth degree here just to, to magnify the situation. I, I wouldn't want that happening in my city right now. But, I mean, as you've been reporting, it seems like an awful lot of the people, especially in Lviv right now, are, are they're upset about what's going on. But life goes on for many of them. Absolutely. Um, this is one of the safest places to be, as I mentioned. Um there's schools opening up even in the western or in sorry in the eastern oblast uh, kids are going back to school they're implementing virtual learning in some of the places that are right on the front i mean these people have it horrible we saw mikhailov get hit by the oblast administration building was hit by a cruise missile while people were at work these people out there have it awful and they're living in hell and back here we're living a comparatively cushy uh cushy life here in lviv um and it's it's quite frustrating to see that sort of dichotomy of just what plays well for the cameras and what plays well for you know uh, the story. 
speaking of that, t- talk to us about how the media is being treated. I mean, there's there's so many people over there that are reporting back, and, and, and there are some restrictions and some parameters, I understand, about what you can say and when you can say it. And I, I don't necessarily know if it's censorship or not. And maybe to draw the analogy with Geraldo once again, I, mean, I still remember those sessions, yeah, where he was all dressed up like that. And basically, he was giving giving away locations where U.S. troops were, uh, which I'm Drawing sure the Pentagon sand, was really yes. happy about. Yeah, trying in the sand. Now, I yeah. I mean, it is censorship to a certain extent, um, you know, but Ukraine is under martial law right now. Uh, we are, and certainly at the media center, we are guests. And part of the consequences that we face uh, for sort of early reporting is that we can have everything from our media accreditation withdrawn uh, at the media center or with the Ministry of Defense if we're uh, working with some of the military folks. If we're really helping Russians, whether deliberately or inadvertently, dial in those strikes by doing real-time reporting, uh, we can be arrested because we're helping them, you know, better target things that go astray. So that's, you know, part of it is why I held off on the reporting until we got confirmation from the city officials of what was hit. And uh, Reuters and uh, AFP had sent out uh, some stories already and then i knew it was you know good to publish but that can take anywhere from an hour to two hours depending on how much they're assessing the damage and what's going on and there's a little bit of leeway they understand that stuff has to be reported and they're, they're quite generous but again this is a country under martial law that's very much trying to fend off attacks and balance that with the need for press censorship because we are very very welcome here i will add that for the situation that's going on they absolutely want the eyes of the world uh, here right now well, and President Zelensky's made that quite clear, hasn't he, with a number of his addresses. He, he wants people to know all the details. But I, I can understand, to a certain extent, uh, trying to control when that message goes out in situations like that. And, and let's face it, I mean, some of our colleagues over the years, including Geraldo, uh, have taken a lot of heat for stuff like this. Brian Williams essentially lost his job with NBC uh, because of, he was enhancing uh, his reporting, I guess, is maybe the best way to put it. Uh, and he was in the penalty box for the longest time, of course, before he went back on MSNBC. Is, is there a concern here about about being accurate and, and understanding exactly reporting what's happening here as opposed to, as you say, maybe enhancing things just a little bit? People are uh, you know, quite concerned about that. People are in the media trying to be quite fair in their reporting. What we see with you know Don Lemon or sometimes the other reports that come out of here is it's dramatization, but it's, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is, you know, photoshopping things into the, to pictures or unconvincingly editing it. This is sort of the, the cable news cycle reality that we live in where things really have to get attention to get ratings. And it's not yet crossed the line to people deliberately lying or, you know, if they do make an error, not correcting it and trying to over defend it. So thankfully we haven't seen that yet. It could just be a matter of time. I certainly hope it isn't but you know our industry does make mistakes um i, I can only hope that when it doesn't inevitably happen uh, it's, it's quickly corrected is there a concern here about what's happening in, in the negotiating table right now i'm sure that I, I know a number of people have been reporting on this but the word on the street right now i mean you know president Zelensky was uh, expressing a, a concern i guess over the weekend that uh, that ukraine may end up as a divided country like you know north korea and south korea uh, things right. of that nature you know, you know getting carved up essentially what is this country going to look like coming out the other end whenever that is going to happen? And and, is, and, and are people concerned that, that this could be a, a, a leap backwards in time? It's definitely a concern. I mean, nobody that I've spoken to has ever said anything about accepting any level of concessions in terms of territorial sovereignty. 
that is, I, I know there's certainly concerns about balkanizing uh, Ukraine over in the West and concerns, I'm sure, in the level of government that there might be some necessary concession of allowing them to annex the, the region, as we very unfortunately saw with Crimea uh, several years ago. But it's in terms of what people are saying on the street, that's absolutely not something that's going to be accepted. They might accept a, a ceasefire coming up and allow you know Russian forces to occupy those with the notion of eventually we're going to get them out. But I don't think from the Ukraine people's perspective that they would allow uh, the Donbass to, to go the way of Crimea. How's the the resolve of the people there? I mean, you know, I still, uh, you and I talked about this, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, his address to the Canadian Parliament uh, and to the UK Parliament, you know, basically channeling Winston Churchill, we'll fight in the beaches, we'll fight in the streets, we will never surrender. Are, are they still feeling that way? I mean, <laughs> since then, you've been reporting about, you know, schools that have been obliterated, children that have been killed, uh, people that basically are having their passports taken away and shipped off to, to Russia uh, under the premise that, well, they're Russians anyway. Well, they're, not, they're Ukrainians, but there they are. Uh, are people saying enough is enough, or are they still behind the president and that resolve? Uh, the more we see of that kind of reports coming out, uh, the more hardened the resolve becomes. Um, these are very much a people that the harder you hit them, the more they want to stand up. Uh, people are frustrated. They do speak of being broken. They do speak of being uh, incredibly sad. Um, but those always animate a kind of anger that is a very dug in, determined, we won't back down. I'll be broken, I'll be sad, but I'll still be standing here is the mentality that comes out of the street constantly. Talk to us about the supply chain issues. I mean, there's always a concern during wartime, and especially as you mentioned, during martial law, to make sure that the, the people that are still there and, these, and some who are fighting for Ukraine, you know, business as usual, but are, you know, are, are those store shelves in those businesses, are they full? Are there, is there product, is there food for people? I mean, is, is, is that being maintained through this, this crisis? I've not seen a large shortage of food. I mean, I know there are disruptions to some of the supplies here as well. One of the big problems with the supply chain right now is the things coming through customs. There's queues of trucks backed up at the Polish border waiting to come through. And that can take quite a long time. A lot of the restrictions here for getting past customs have been eased. Uh, this was announced maybe a couple of weeks ago and it started to take off in about the past week. A lot of the folks who are coordinating humanitarian efforts to get supplies and get them out to the front are taking advantage of those eased restrictions. They have people at the border and they'll give a call to humanitarian aid coming through and say, hey, take a picture of your of your vehicle and, and the cargo in it and we'll you know, we'll forward that right away to customs and then you can come right through. And then what those folks do in terms of volunteering is they take all that stuff that comes off those trucks, load them onto pallets, put them on buses and send them out everywhere east and south. And, and that's the important thing. I mean, there isn't a day goes by back here uh, where we don't see some local group in Hamilton or London or any other place, uh, you know, a church group or something else that are raising funds or, or trying to get something over there. But uh, from your reporting, that stuff is getting over there and it is getting to people because we, we've heard in the past, of course, where sometimes, you know, in, in other parts of the world where there are hotspots and, and conflicts going on, uh, it gets uh, circumvented and it doesn't really get to the people that need it most. But it sounds as if they've maintained that supply chain. I wouldn't say they've maintained it. I'd say they've adapted what they had. Okay. Um, it might be a bit more of a fair description because the way it was working, you know, maybe a month ago is not what we're seeing now. We don't see, you know, big uh, 26-foot 
trailers going through, you know, all the way down to, to Kharkiv or to Odessa. But what we do see is a lot of people taking those 26-foot trailers over here, unloading them, getting them into daily buses, vans, other small shipping things. They have to be careful how they drive so, you know, they don't drive too close so they don't look like a convoy formation. They unload these at, you know, various different depots around the city to make sure people have stuff. And we know that the, you know, the Western uh, fundraising is working because that's what's coming over. It's either coming over in, in dollar value or it's coming over in goods. And the big thing I'm hearing from them is, you know, that's just got to keep coming. So the fundraising that people are doing over in in the Western world is really helping. And thankfully, Poland is being very cooperative because like you said, we've seen this shut down in other places. And uh, the countries, really not just Poland, but all the countries uh, you know, that aren't Belarus and Russia are making sure supplies uh, do keep coming through the customs, making sure that there's no saboteurs or weapons or stuff like that coming through, but they are making sure that the lifeblood can keep getting to this country and that people can keep being fed, have diapers for their kids, have baby formula, have medicine, all that stuff of mattresses and blankets that they need to sleep on in shelters because they're getting hypothermic sleeping on the cold floors but it's coming through president Zelensky was getting uh, i i gathered anyway rather frustrated i guess after the nato meeting last week and and again basically calling out uh, president biden in the united states saying look you've got the stuff that we need you know the no fly zone the the fighter jets etc 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 uh a certain frustration that that it's yeah we appreciate the help but uh, are you getting that sense from the, the people you're talking to in Lviv? Everywhere you go in Lviv, you see posters that say, close the skies. Um, you see uh, increasing stuff calling out NATO. I know Zelensky very famously said the other day that don't ever tell us our army is not uh, up to NATO standards again. And basically saying, hey, why aren't you doing more? Um, the frustration is very real. They're very grateful for the other stuff they get. The, you know, the javelins are very famous in the end laws here for taking mm -hmm. out tanks, the arms and stuff like that. But again, the sentiment is, is very much that this is not enough that, uh, you know, they can shoot down 90% of cruise missiles or take out 90% of the tanks, but it's still not going to be enough. They're going to keep getting hammered unless something more is done. That seems to be the message. Uh, Matthew, always great to get your perspective on this and uh, give us the uh, uh, the bare bones of what's going on there. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. Stay safe. I uh, hope you get well soon, by the way. And uh, we'll talk again in a few days. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Bill. Take care. Matthew Best, freelance journalist who is uh, in Lviv in Ukraine, uh, giving us the uh, update on what's happening on the ground there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.